Good morning. Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us in such a great way, allowing us to just join together, worship the Lord, meaningful songs. He's worthy of everything we do, right? Let's pray before we look into God's word. Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you that you are so worthy, and we can't even say enough great things about you, and we still don't come close. We thank you for the gift of singing songs and uh, just joining together in worship. Pray that you would open our eyes to your word, help us to grow closer to you, to know more about you, and to be more dedicated to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What thoughts come to your mind when you think of church? You know, you may think of the people that you attend church with. You may think of the church service and its different parts. You may think of things outside of the church service like church meals, special meetings, the church atmosphere. excuse me, special individuals that you like to see. Or perhaps for some, the thoughts in your mind might be trying to get multiple children out of bed, dressed, fed, and ready in order to get to church on time. And make sure you catch that one that kind of sneaks out to the creek or gets in the mud or something like that after he's already dressed. But then we move on from our time and what we know of church, and we look into the book of Acts, which tells us how the church came into being. And and that says a lot about what church should be, is how it came into being. And we know that Jesus chose 12 disciples with some others that were kind of in that group, but he chose 12 specifically to be his apostles. And we know that these individuals basically lived and traveled with Jesus. And they watched him heal the sick and raise the dead. They watched him feed thousands with just a little bit of food. They watched him perform many miracles. And they listened to him and he taught them so much about God. And the thing was, they were starving for real knowledge about God because, well, the religious leaders, at least that we see in the Bible, they really didn't know much about God. And so he taught them so much. It was almost as if he knew God. (laughs) And they saw him teach in the temple and speak to the crowds, the crowds that would gather to hear him and follow him. They watched the religious leaders attack him in any way they could to try to make him look foolish, which, of course, would backfire on them. And then after three years, these followers of Jesus watched him die in the most brutal death there could be. And at that point, all hope seemed lost. And that was their journey with him. But then three days later... They heard that he was alive. 
And then throughout the next 40 days, he kept appearing to them to prove to them that he was alive, that it was him, the one who died, who was on the cross. And now he has risen. And he tells them he is commissioning them to testify to others that he had actually resurrected. They would be his main witnesses, his primary witnesses, because they knew him before and they knew it was the same person that had risen. And then upon that confession of faith of the resurrected Christ, he said, well, upon the resurrected Christ, the living, the son of the living God, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. And the gates of hell refers to the armies, the forces of Satan. Because that's where the armies lined up to go start a battle. So that is where we come from as a church of Jesus Christ. And that is our foundation. And it can never be destroyed or taken away from us. No matter who writes any book or says anything or has a large following to say something against it, that will always be our foundation. Jesus Christ, our confession in him. And as we have been going through the book of Acts, we see the church being birthed by Jesus as he sends the Holy Spirit. And the gospel message is preached to thousands at that time. We have thousands in that first day coming to the Lord. We see Jesus birthing and building his church. We also see Satan trying to overcome the church. The religious leaders arrest the apostles because they don't like the way that they're preaching. They beat them. They put them into prison. God frees them from prison, tells them to go back and start preaching again. And he sends them to the back, back to the same exact place where they got uh, arrested and put in prison. And the people didn't even know that they had left the prison, the ones who, who arrested them. Now, eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, a very faithful disciple named Stephen is arrested. He's brought before the Jewish high court. He tells the authorities what he really thinks about them. They get so angry that they run up to him screaming. They take him, they run him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And here again, we have the armies of Satan trying to stop the church from carrying out its mission. All along, the armies of Satan, the gates of hell. But at the stoning of Stephen, major persecution breaks out against the church. And the people are going after the disciples, going after this, this young church. And most of the church flees out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. It's so, so harsh. And it looks as though Satan has overcome. It looks as though the armies of hell are winning. But then Luke records that wherever the persecuted Christians go to, they spread the message of the gospel. And so the church is growing. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevent it. Then we're told of a very special individual, very strong, forceful, 
dedicated, absolutely determined in his Jewish faith. His name is Saul of Tarsus, and he hates Christians. Luke says he was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. And he's out even by himself to wipe out this movement. He calls them enemies of God. He travels far and wide to find Christians, drags them out of their homes, takes them to prison, men and women alike. But then he's on his way to Damascus, north of Israel, excuse me, and he's struck to the ground by a bright light coming from heaven. And he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And we know it's Jesus. And he tells Saul to get up and go into the city, Damascus. And then he will tell him what to do. <laughs> Saul wasn't used to Christians telling him what to do, was he? And Jesus says, you do what I say now. And guess what? Saul becomes the most ardent follower of Christ ever. The Apostle Paul. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. He takes the main person who's trying to destroy the church and turns him into a witness of his. Now, excuse me, I'd like to make a comment about Paul's conversion. You know, we we went through it a few weeks ago, but, you know, his conversion from hater of the church to the most dedicated servant of Jesus Christ, and we may look at that story and think, well, you know, Paul really didn't have a choice. He was struck to the ground. He was blinded. What else could he do? All he could do was say, yes, Lord. But, you know, that's not really true. And sometimes people like to use Paul as an example of what salvation is all about. That the only way you get saved is when you get knocked down and forced. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 16... And I'm, you know, this is just obvious in this this passage, but it happens all over the place. In chapter 16, towards the end of God's judgments upon the earth, he's pouring out his wrath, his bowls of wrath, upon all those who will not repent. It's God's end-time judgment. And as the bowls of wrath are poured out upon the wicked... It says, they cursed the name of God who had control over the plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So as they are getting pelted with gigantic boulders and God is pouring out his awesome wrath upon these that will never turn to him, it says, they they hold up their fists. It's in different Uh, plagues that are coming at the end. And sometimes they hold up their fists against God. But he's given them a chance to repent right there. It says they won't do it. So you see, when Paul was knocked down, he could have chosen to remain stubborn and hateful 
and unrepentant and pride. But you know what he saw? He saw that this was the truth, that Jesus Christ was real. But in the end time, it's going to be Christ coming down, and they're going to see the same thing, but they're not going to repent. Their hearts are just stone cold, and they let themselves get there, and they're against God. So <clears throat> that's the difference between the two. And then again, Jesus says, on this rock, the rock that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. <clears throat> now I want to move to an incident involving the Apostle Peter. I'm kind of going through this, uh, what we've done in short fashion, then we're going to get to chapter uh, 13. <clears throat> King Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, had Peter arrested. It says, he began arresting some who belonged to the church. And we looked at that last week. And it said that King Herod Agrippa, not, not Herod the Great, the grandson, but King Herod <clears throat> had the apostle James, uh, brother of John, put to death. And he saw that the Jews were very happy about that. So he thought, okay, I'll arrest Peter. But it was during the uh, week of Passover. And so he was going to put him in jail for the week, and then put him on trial, then assuming that he would kill him. Well, we saw last week how an angel of the Lord freed Peter, who was sleeping between two soldiers, and he was bound with chains. Herod appointed four squads of four soldiers each to prevent his escape. And then there were two guards near the entrance or outside the prison, prison walls. And when they came to the iron gate leading to the city, the gate just opened by itself. <clears throat> so again, I will build my church. But I want you to, sh want you to see um, Acts chapter 12. And verses 18 and 19 here, real quick. <clears throat> it says, In the morning there was no small... This is when Peter escapes, you know, the angel frees him. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So again, when it looks like the church is going to be defeated, Christ says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. And then the very next... <clears throat> report from Luke tells us that Herod went to Caesarea, Herod Agrippa, the one who was arresting the Christians, 
to deliver a public address, a public address to the people who were trying to curry his favor. And they were dependent upon him for their food, so they were trying to, you know, be real nice to him and, and butter him up. And he was wearing these bright kingly robes. And people shouted as, as the sun shone upon them. People shouted, he's a god, not a man. And Luke says that because Herod did not give praise to God, and he just accepted their praise, the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. And then Luke adds, <clears throat> but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And there again, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. <clears throat> so we've talked a little bit about how we see the church today in our present circumstances when we first began. And we realize that we have here in America been very privileged to live in a land that up to now has been positive toward religion. You know, it was based upon Christianity that the nation was started, the, the, the ones who started our nation. It was based upon freedom of worship and biblical values. And we also see things now as they're moving in another direction. And the more society moves away from Christian values, the more we are going to have to be certain of our Christian values. We certainly don't want to be swept away with the tide that moves us away from God. And that moves a lot of people. That, when people aren't really anchored in the faith and something comes in from the culture, it's just so easy to get moved away unless we're anchored in the faith. <clears throat> so the more society moves away from Christian values, the more we are going to have to be certain of our Christian values. We don't want to be swept away. We keep hearing that many are abandoning the faith. And we want to be a church that helps each other hold even more strongly to the faith that might be becoming under more pressure. So our faithfulness to the word will keep us strong in the faith because that's where we encounter truth. And the more that we ingest the word of God, and make it a part of who we are, make it a part of our being, the stronger in Christ we become. And the more solid we become in our convictions and our knowledge of the truth and the word, the better friend we become with Jesus Christ. So, I'd like to finish this morning with one short story involving the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Those were two giants in the Christian faith. It's a very interesting story. And again, it will show us the power of God over the power of darkness. <clears throat> so, I'm going to read from the last verse in chapter 12, because it kind of belongs with the chapter 13 story, and move into chapter 13, first three verses. It says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. <clears throat> they, their mission was to take money down to the Judean churches and Christians because of the, the drought. 
Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. They had some pretty remarkable people in that church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now it appears that the church in Antioch, that's the one we were just talking about, had some very gifted members in their church. Prophets and teachers, I mean true leaders. And while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Barnabas and Paul and Saul for another work he had for them. How would would you like to give up two people like Barnabas and Saul from your church? And how many times, how many reasons could you probably think of that they shouldn't go? But yet we also know that God knows what he's doing, right? We could think, well, that's going to weaken our church. I'll bet many in the church could think of a lot of reasons that Paul and Barnabas shouldn't leave. But that was God's command. And all through the book of Acts, we see God doing things in in ways that we would never choose to do them. On the surface, they don't seem right. Why would you take these two from us? But all the way through the book of Acts, we see things that God has allowed, organized, or whatever, and they don't seem like they're helpful, like Stephen being stoned or church leaders being put in prison or persecution driving everyone out of Jerusalem, out of their homes, the severe famine hitting the young church in Judea. So if it's beyond our control, we just basically have to accept it, don't we? I mean, we really don't have a choice, but here's the choice. We also need to turn to God in those circumstances, don't we? I mean, we have to acknowledge that God knows all things. He knows how to direct the church. He knows how to make it move forward and build it up. And so in those cases where something goes wrong in our sin, in our minds, maybe even evil, we really need to get over our fretting and place our trust in God to work it out. And if we are able to truly hand it over to God, I know that will make a big difference in our lives, in our attitudes, in our moods, in our ability to do what God is calling us to do. It's submitting to the will of God, isn't it? But let's see now what happens when Paul and Barnabas set sail. Verses 4 through 12. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island off the coast there from 
that area of the Holy Land and, and Antioch and that area. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper, John Mark. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. That's the same Bar-Jesus. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is... I'm sorry, it's still Paul talking. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. That's pretty blind, isn't it? Well, there it is again. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. It's just kind of a mistake there. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. <clears throat> and here again, you know, the gates of hell are rattling. They're trying to get through. They're trying to stop things. And Jesus says, I will, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. It sounds like Elimus really got on Paul's nerves. I mean, his words to him were like sharp and cutting. And you can tell that Paul was not in the mood for politely asking Elimus, hey, could you just tone it down a little bit? Wouldn't you rather just go home right now? Not hardly, right? He looked at him straight and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you not stop perverting the right way of the Lord? And you know, I think he did that not only for Elimus, but also for the proconsul. He told him he'd be blind for a time not able to even see the light of the sun. He had to hold someone's hand just to get anywhere. And it says the proconsul believed. There again. The gates of hell will not be able to stop it. The miracle of Elimus' blindness backed up the message of Paul and Barnabas. The proconsul could see that, okay, these guys, they know what's going on. And everything they're saying is right. And he came to faith. So really what Paul saw as this totally aggravated, 
wicked magician turned out to be part of the reason the proconsul believed. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the enemies of hell, the armies of hell will not overcome it. And here's what I think. <clears throat> I think that the, the more our society turns away from God, the more we need to move closer to God. You know, the temptation is, well, you know, if they're so offended by these Christian things, maybe we should just tone it down a little bit. But the farther our society distances itself from God's word or its teachings, the more that we have to embrace God's word and its teachings. Because they need to see the difference, don't they? And the more our society runs from the Bible, we have to run to the Bible. I want to read a quote from one Bible scholar. He comments on chapter 12 where, you know, Peter was put in prison and Herod is proclaimed to God. And I want to read what one scholar, Bible scholar said about this. He's talking about chapter 12 because at the beginning, the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he, him, he is himself struck down and dies. Says the chapter opens with James dead, you know, the brother of John, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. And it's on this rock I will build my church. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your love and your care and your mercy. We know that things can get tough, and we pray that we would be strong in your word and help us to go grow closer to you, to run toward your word and you as things turn away from you. And may we be able to help so many people, no matter what happens, that, that they can trust in the fact that you will save them and they can find salvation in you and they can find new life in you. We pray that we can be that, that element, you know, that help in our society, in our culture, in our town. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.